IO9 presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor of several anthologies, such as Wastelands and the Living Dead. Uh, my latest book is Brave New Worlds, uh, an anthology of dystopian fiction. And other recent books include The Way of the Wizard and The Living Dead 2. And I'm also the editor of the magazines Fantasy and Lightspeed. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. Uh, my short fiction appears in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction and Fantasy the Best of the Year. And my newest stories are Cats in Victory and Lightspeed, The Skullface City and The Living Dead 2, and Family Tree in the Way of the Wizard. And today on the show, we'll be interviewing Jennifer Finney Boylan, author of the new middle grade fantasy novel Falcon Quinn in the Black Mirror. Jenny is also the author of She's Not There, one of the first best selling memoirs by a transgendered American. She's made numerous TV appearances, including The Oprah Winfrey Show, Larry King Live, and The Today Show. And she teaches English and creative writing at Colby College, where she was named Professor of the Year in 2000 and where I was lucky enough to study with her. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so uh, so we're here with Jennifer Finney Boylan. Welcome to the show. Hi there. How are you? Um, so first of all, uh, in your memoir, she's not there. You talk about a childhood game called Girl Planet. Could you tell us about that? Well, sure. Uh, uh, as a um, a transgender person, um, when I was a kid, I really didn't know what was wrong with me. You know, I had this sense of myself um, as not belonging. One of the things that I I did when I was a child was I would go across the street to uh, this big forest in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and um, I kind of walk through this forest, and, you know, I'd play this game where, you know, that I was an astronaut, you know, crash-landed on some foreign planet, and on this planet, the the air had this remarkable uh, ability to change people, to change boys into girls. You know, there was nothing you could do about it. Uh, it would even change your clothes. That's how how powerful that atmosphere was. Anyway, that's that's one of the one of the things I did when I was a kid. Even before I knew, you know, that transgender was was a word or that um it even applied to me. I mean just sort of as a science fiction fan, it just sort of struck me that you would imagine sort of astronauts and alien planets and things. Do you have any idea why that why Well that remember is- of course that, that in the in the mid sixties, space travel and space exploration was kind of a national obsession. So the, the Mercury program and the Gemini program and the um, Apollo program were things, you know, they would bring in televisions into the classroom so we could watch the rocket launch, so we could watch the, the splashdowns, you know. I mean, it was a big thing. There's a reason why Lost in Space and Star Trek um, and later, much later on, Battlestar Galactica. I mean, all those things began not so much out of science fiction, I think, but also out of just the reality that space was something that we we cared about back in the day, which I don't think it is now, unfortunately. Uh, so in your first novel, The Planets, there's a character who uh, secretly dresses up as a wizard. Uh, so how'd you come up with that? <laughs> wow, you've really done your homework. <laughs> I didn't know anybody who read The Planets anymore. <laughs> there's, a, there's a character who dresses up as a wizard. I don't know, man. When I wrote The, I mean, I wrote the Planets, I was, I was uh, about 30 years old, and I was not out. I was still kind of living as a boy, but I was definitely obsessed with people who had secrets and how would people live with secrets. And, and 
certainly I had a secret life as a woman that I was trying to keep as, as well hidden as I possibly could. I mean, there's this one character, I mean, this is one character, uh, Wendy Willisco, who I think you're referring to, and she's just got, she's got a very active fantasy life where she dresses up in, like, you know, medieval garb, and, and, uh, she's one of a group of people who lives in this kind of desperate, dying mill town where there's the fire, it's not a mill town, it's a coal town, it's a fire underground and the coal seams, and it's, it's a very grim place, and in response to that, she's got this, Baroque fantasy life. Now you can see that as a reflection of what it's like to be transgender, and surely I did have a, a Baroque fantasy life of my own, nearly as Baroque as secretly being a wizard. <laughs> but I think, in a in a larger sense, I, I wanted to talk about the way people have fantasy lives, and sometimes their fantasy lives are sources of tremendous power and play and fun, and I hate the the way in the culture in which sometimes people talk about someone's not well grounded in reality because they have a very big fantasy life. Sometimes we see that as it's a it's a way of criticizing someone or making it seem as if the character is just not well adjusted. Whereas you know sometimes people who have um, fine fantasy lives are extremely well adjusted. That's how they stay well adjusted. I don't know. I guess for a lot of transgender people though. The question gets raised, what is your fantasy life? Is your fantasy life what you're doing when no one else is around and you're able to be the person you imagine yourself to be? Or is your fantasy life reality? The, you know, the, the you everyone thinks is real is in fact something that you've had to invent. For me, as a trans woman, the idea of this guy that I had to be back before I came out, it's kind of like that was a fantasy life. And so for this particular character in the planet, this woman who, you know, is dressing up as a wizard and, and uh, as a cave woman and God knows what else she's got going on there. Um, there is a sense that that fantasy doesn't make her all that happy in the end, that she can't reconcile reality, which is a very disappointing place, with her private and imaginative self, which is a wonder, wonderfully exciting place, but frustrating because it's not real. As, as someone who is keeping this secret, did you ever... Write, write fiction where you were afraid that you would be giving too much away to, to people who would read it? I think readers of my early work detected some sort of inner struggle. I don't know. When I look at, when I look at those books now, which I, I very rarely do, I think my sense of the, the, the person telling the stories is that the person telling the story is keeping something from the reader. The author of those stories is trying to get by on sheer speed and cleverness alone. The novels are very much about how cool and crazy they are, which is not a bad thing for a novel to be about, I have to say. Hmm. But there's not a lot of um, emotional truth. Although, I mean, I want to make sure, I don't, those novels are really funny, and they're, they're, they're propelled by a kind of manic energy. And I think we have a tendency to kind of look down on, on comedy as a, a, a form less exalted than, say, a story about, you know, emotional truth where everyone is sitting around talking about how miserable they are. And although I obviously, there's nothing more important for me at this point in my life than trying to encourage everyone to live their lives openly and honestly, I also want to say there's a lot to be said for comic buoyancy, the sheer joy and exuberance of wicked laughter. You know, there's there's no shortage of books and 
creations in this world in which people are crying their eyes out because they're trying to live their truth and can't. But there is a shortage of books that are really genuinely funny and make you just put the book down in shock and amazement and think, wow, that was some weird shit. (laughs) (laughs) So um, if you are funny, you can get away, you can get away with a lot. I mean, I've certainly found that as, I mean, look at, you know, I mean, I've had a, a fairly successful career talking about transgender issues to people and, and people are put at ease by the fact that I have a sense of humor and I can make this difficult material seem funny. I had this amazing experience this week, or actually it was just last week. Uh, I went back to my old high school. I'd been asked by the um, headmaster of my old high school, which was an all-boys school, to come and talk. And I, w- I had very mixed feelings about doing it because it sounded to me kind of like the nightmare you'd wake up from mm-hmm. screaming. You know, that you're, you're back to your old high school uh, after your sex change, and also you're incredibly old. That I mentioned mm-hmm. you're incredibly old, um, and yet when I when I left the auditorium and, they, and, they, and it went really really well, I was really surprised. I mean, the boys at that school cheered like I was Elvis. It was really deeply moving. And I heard one kid on the way out say to the other, "Wow, you know, that was really. I didn't expect that was going to be so funny." Hmm. Uh, could you talk about Richard Russo's character, Professor Phineas? Well, I can. It's all supposed to be a great big mistake, you know. Um, Professor Phineas in Russo's novel um, *Straight Man* is um, called Finney, which is the middle name that I took. Actually, my partner's uh, maiden name. So for a long time, I was using um, Finney as my middle name, my nom de plume, because there was another James Boylan back in the day. Uh, and so I used James Finney Boylan to differentiate myself from him, and also because it was an act of love. So anyway, um, there I was at some party, and uh, somebody came up to me and said, did you read Russo's new novel? And I said, no. And they said, well, gee, I, what do you think about him naming that crossdresser after you? And of course, this was back before I came out, back when I thought this was all uh, you know, a state secret. And I just thought, what the? What? <laughs> Ooh, Oh my God, he knows. Everybody knows. So I was, I was kind of hurt by it. And um, only later did Rick say to me, "Oh, that is your name." Oh well, but you know, it was because I, because no one, including Rick, thought that I was a crossdresser. Actually, uh, it was all supposed to be big fun, and we all had a good laugh about it. But it was one of those moments, and I, I it's heartbreaking when you find yourself in a moment like this where you have to laugh along with everyone else because to not laugh means that you have to pretend that you don't have something secret that's tearing you apart. Uh, you you know, you have to keep up the front of being like everyone else. I think that's a, actually a very common experience that people have. I saw on your website that Will Forte like played you in a skit on Saturday Night Live. What was the context of that? <laughs> Uh, my 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 greatest moment as a professor <laughs> ever, my the shining pinnacle of my career was turning on Saturday Night Live when when I, when I never watched that show anymore because um oh I don't know why don't I watch that show because I'm because I'm old and because I'm sleepy <laughs> but I was watching it on Saturday night kind of at random and there was Will Forte imitating me and the cool thing was that it was actually it was actually very respectful um it the the skit was that um. Uh, it was a takeoff of, of the Larry King show that I'd been on the following week. And on the Larry King show, Larry just got completely lost 
there were a couple of transgender people on the show, and he couldn't remember what sex anyone was or what sex <laughs> they'd been or which direction anybody was going. He asked me a question, uh, so Jennifer, back when you were a man, were you a lesbian? <laughs> and I, I just, I, I just hadn't, I, I was like, what are you talking, I mean, actually, in a way, the answer is yes, but I just, uh, that's not how he meant, I just, and that was, I was not the, there were other people on the show with whom he was just completely, completely confused. Anyway, so this, this in this bit, the joke was on Larry King, we had, there was an actor, another actor who was playing Larry King, getting completely lost, and the Will Forte character played the role of this relatively nice person who just couldn't believe that Larry was getting so lost. So it's speaking of straight men, they played, they played me, a man played me as a woman, as a straight man to Larry King. <laughs> but um, in a way I thought, well, gee, that's, that's kind of a measure of how much the culture has changed too, that you could have someone playing me on Saturday Night Live and that I would, that I would not be the object of the joke. You know, some people did ask me, so, you know, weren't, weren't your feelings hurt that they had a man playing you? But, you know, of course, my clever, my immediate and clever answer was, hey, man, a man played me for years. It's <laughs> fine. Um, okay, so uh, you, you talked about having a powerful emotional reaction to the fellow, Fellowship of the Ring movie. Uh, could you tell us about that? Well, sure. Um, you know, I, I was one of the, I was a Tolkien nerd in the 70s. And, you know, I, when I found out they were doing the, that movie, uh, the Peter Jackson movie, I, I was totally psyched for it, and I was amazed what a good job they were able to do. I don't know that the screenplay for those Lord of the Rings movies have really gotten the praise they deserve. One of the reasons those movies were never made, in addition to like just the CGI stuff not being advanced enough until the turn of the millennium, it's also just that there's just a lot going on in those films, and it's very hard to write. And I just thought they did a magnificent job of incorporating most of what is really cool about the book. Now, I think anybody who's involved in a fantasy literature um, enjoys it not only for just the, the sheer imaginative romp of it, but also looks at, looks at these things in very personal terms. And so for me, uh, you know, I always had a, a very intimate relationship with Lord of the Rings. You know, I don't know who it doesn't sound too deranged to say that um, when you spend your life struggling with a frame of mind that you don't want, particularly want to go over to. When I was a man, I want—I mean, I—I I really wanted not to be transgender. It really—it you know bummed me out. It was this, this endless yearning that just could not be satisfied by anything, and it was kind of absurd to me. You know, I was like, why, why do I need to be female so drastically? It's—it's it's the dumbest thing. Why would I need that? And why does everything else in my life keep? pulling me towards that. And so The Ring in the Lord of the Rings movies felt like a, to, to, a, to an adolescent, like a really powerful symbol for something that is irresistible and pulling you toward it and you can't resist it. And so so The Ring, to a certain extent, I saw as, you know, when I was a kid, was kind of like embracing this dark truth of being trans. So when Bilbo uh, and Frodo meet up again in Rivendell, and uh, Bilbo turns into a monster and tries to grab that ring for a second. Um, there's a very, I and mean, it's a really kind of powerful, scary moment. And then he just says, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that you have, that you have to carry this burden. I'm sorry about everything. And of course, you know, by that time I was in transition and I was with my spouse and watching the movie. And, you know, I felt really bad for her that, 
this person that she married, meaning me, um, turned out to be someone other than than the man she thought she was she was married to. So that idea of I'm sorry you've come in for this burden. Um, I'm sorry about everything. And certainly some of it hit me very strongly. You recently contributed a piece to the new, the forthcoming anthology, uh, It Gets Better. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that uh, project? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people know about the It Gets Better project by this point. Um, uh, Dan Savage uh, is the guy who initiated this. And it was in response to the teen suicides. Um, on college campuses and high schools in the fall of 2010. Uh, there is, in some ways, a very simple message. Do you want to tell young people that their lives are not always going to be as difficult as they are when they're, when they're 16? That, um, uh, eventually you get, a, you get away from this world and you, and you get to make your own world to, to a certain extent. Um, and, so anyway, the It Gets Better project was was just a series of um, pieces, especially on YouTube, in which older people just wanted to send a message that life you won't always hurt the way you hurt when you're when you're an adolescent to young GLBT people who, um, in particularly, might be struggling and considering taking their own lives. So um, I think the final book is a hundred. Um, a hundred of these pieces. Uh, I don't know if they're all celebrities or if they're some of them are just somewhat obscure or what. But I but um, I know I was the second one accepted, and the first one was um, Gregory Maguire, hmm. who did the the Wicked books and uh, um, some of those some of those books. And the piece and they're, they're meant to be short. My piece is actually uh, something that originally appeared in a slightly different form in uh, She's Not There, as a story of a trip to Nova Scotia when I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Um, but I was thinking of, uh, I don't know if I was really thinking of ending at all, but I was certainly very depressed and I didn't know what to do. And I got, I climbed a mountain and stood at the edge of a cliff. And uh, I did, I did not die. I failed to die. Um, and so um, and that's the heart of what that piece is about. Um, I think that book is coming out from Penguin in February or March. It's a real, it's a real rush. It's coming out um, in a great big hurry. Um, so we've talked a bit about your memoir, uh, She's Not There, but you also wrote a memoir about uh, growing up in a haunted house. Yeah, well, the, you know, the second memoir is called I'm Looking Through You, and it is about, on the surface, it's about growing up in a house that was allegedly haunted. Yet, I think the real ghosts in that book are psychological. What haunting seems to mean to me is the way in which people are trying to negotiate between the people that they are, the people that they've been, and the people that they will become in time. When you're an older person, as I am, you're often, to be haunted can mean that something happened in your past that you've never quite gotten over or that you're just not at peace with. When you're a young person, if you're haunted, it's that you can't quite imagine who you're going to be when you grow up, or you can't imagine growing up at all. This isn't a thing that's unique to transgender people. Um, I think lots of people um, struggle with how to draw a line between who they've been and who they've become. But it is a particular, it's a unique situation for transgender people because 
as a grown woman now, I'm a woman who never had a girlhood particularly. Um, I had I had a boyhood, and it was a boyhood that wasn't necessarily all unhappy either. And there are some things that I did that are kind of stereotypically boy things in my past. So what does it what does that mean? So that's what to a certain extent I'm looking through you. It's about it's trying to to figure out how to be happy as a woman when I'm haunted by this boy that I was, um, and also by the girl that I never was. And it, and it, I hope it does provide a good coda to she's not there because I mean a lot of transgender. I mean by the way, there's like eight million transgender memoirs out there, and often. If, if the protagonist is transsexual, the climax of the book is a trip to some surgeon's office, and after afterwards, um, everyone lives happily ever after. And I wanted to kind of um, deconstruct that narrative, if you'll pardon the phrase, and um, show that you know the ghosts that you wrestle with, you never completely get rid of. It's not a unqualified happy ending. It's a qualified happy ending, as Rousseau would would call it. And and yet, in that way of trying to make peace with the people we've been, the experience of a transgender person is not substantively different from the experience that, that anybody else has as you get older. And you try to think, who is that child that I was? Where is where is that child now? The answer is that, that you know, as E.T. would say, you know, I'll be right here. You, it's the, the child is within you, and you carry him or her with you. Uh, so your latest novel is Falcon Quinn and the Black Mirror. Uh, what's it about? Falcon Quinn and the Black Mirror is a young adult project that I wrote with my then middle school age boys. And it is about a young man who, when he turns 13, finds that the school bus takes him to an academy for monsters. And before everybody starts to groan and say, oh, how Harry Potter of you, mm-hmm. I have to say that the, the book really doesn't have anything to do with Harry Potter, except for the fact that, you know, there's a school and there's a kid. For the characters in Harry Potter, you know, they're kind of psyched that they're all going to be wizards and, and, and witches and that there's magic. I mean, that's all that's all um, a lot of fun. I mean, the whole Voldemort and end of the world thing, that's not so much a good time. But hmm. mostly being a kid who is able to use magic is seen as a good thing. Well, at the Academy for Monsters, Falcon and his friends are, in general, not thrilled about being monsters. They're kind of bummed out about it. And each of them has to be diagnosed with what kind of monsterhood they're suffering from. And the purpose of the Academy is to teach you how not to be a monster, how to imitate a human being so that you can survive in the world. So what Falcon Quinn is about is about a bunch of kids who are being taught how to resist their natures, which means that the fundamental question of Falcon Quinn is this. Is it better to become, learn how to become something you're not if it literally means you can survive in the world or to embrace your true self if your true self is like a zombie or a Sasquatch. And for Falcon, our hero, it's even more complex because it's not even clear that Falcon is a monster. We don't know what he is. And there's a possibility that he's been brought to the Academy by mistake. And he has to ask himself if he will lose all of his friends if it turns out that he's not a monster and he has to come out as a human being. So Falcon Quinn is about all the same stuff I've been writing about before. I hope I – and mean, you don't have to be an English major to realize <laughs> that these are all issues of identity and difference that are at the heart of certainly the, the memoirs I've been writing about. But what, what I hope the, – the cool thing about Falcon Quinn is that you know middle schoolers and the, the Harry Potter 
uh, demographic can read this book and see it just as a as a fun, goofy book about monsters. And at the same time, it works perfectly well as a metaphor for what do we do with people who are different in the culture, particularly in middle school when issues of difference are uh, you know really begin to really be burdens in in kids' hearts. Anyway, I wrote the book with and for my boys who had such a ball. Uh, Max the Sasquatch is essentially built upon the character of my older boy, who is a, a large, happy-go-lucky kind of a hippie guy. And Falcon is a little bit more like my younger son, Sean, who's very smart and very um, cunning and witty. And um, he's a logician. He's always trying to figure out how things fit together. So... I have to say, it was a delightful thing to do. It was the most fun I've had as a writer in my life because the boys would get home from school at the end of the day. They'd throw their backpacks on the floor and they'd say, "So, did you do any work on the monster book today?" Hmm. And uh, I would I would tell them what I'd written. I'd read them what I'd written that day, and they were the toughest audience in the world. I had, in fact, I had to change the ending to the second book because they just would not um, hmm. accept the ending that I'd written. So. Every writer should have two people as critics that they love as much as I love my boys. It's good for you as a as a writer and as a parent. Hmm. See, I, I heard you say that one of your sons suggested a were-turtle character, but that didn't pass scientific muster with your other son. Uh, what's wrong with a were-turtle? Um, uh, the were-turtle the the did, in fact, come out, but there was a lot of, of disagreement about how is it that some of these kids transform into their animal selves at a time other than the full moon. So we had to we we had a we had a, a major argument about that about whether where creatures could become their own selves when when the moon was not full. But you know, fictionally, you know, you end up finessing it in the same way that you know in Twilight they had to figure out a way of enabling the vampires to walk around during the daytime. So I will say that there are vampires in Falcon Quinn, but um, the vampires in Falcon Quinn are um, kind of the snobs. There's 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 a certain monster pyramid with, you know, some monsters are better than other monsters. So the vampires think of themselves as like, you know, the bomb. <laughs> and then beneath them is anything with like, you know, like leprechauns and anything else that has magical powers. And then below them are, you know, is anything that's been dead, that's been brought back to life. And the very bottom are zombies who are just, you know, decaying. So I I liked writing that because I think, I mean, kids know in eighth grade what the equivalent is, you know, what's where you fit in, whether you're on the football team or whether you're in, in band or whether you're in chorus or whether you're one of the quiet people who just, you know, plays on his DS, you know, or whether you're, you know, an Xbox nerd or what. There's Everybody kind of knows where they fit in in the pecking order. And um, so that was really fun to write about. And it was also, it gave me a chance to kind of push back against the culture's current obsession with vampires. Although I think I have to say, it seems to me like the vampire thing is over. I think everybody's sick of vampires. So um, it's now on to zombies. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to get pretty sick of zombies pretty soon, too, if you ask me. Oh, well, I mean, speaking of monsters, you know, one of my favorite events at Colby was the Halloween readings that you did with Professor Bassett. Could you talk about how that got started and what sorts of things well, you read over the years? It's something that Professor Bassett had been doing um, long before I ever arrived. I, I came to Colby. Uh, when I was 30 years old in 1988, and Bassett immediately saw in me uh, a kindred spirit, which is to say, a ham. Hmm. So on Halloween, 
Bassett and I would go to the chapel and we would read ghost stories for the students. And if that just sounds too little college um, warm and cozy for you, um, what can I say other than <laughs> that it was a ball, it was fun. And, you know, the ghost stories, some of them were really scary, but most of them were kind of silly. Uh, you know, Bassett would read The Swordsman of Varnus, which I believe ends with one character saying, oh, the hell with it, and shooting everyone with a laser gun. And he would read, at one time he read a Woody Allen story about, um, oh, I forget, somehow a character, uh, some, some English major winds up stuck inside Madame Bovary. Uh, I read a couple Stephen King stories. I read, there's a Nicholson Baker story about a man who's uh, attacked by, by um, evil potatoes. I've read pieces from The Princess Bride, which is always fun because everyone in the audience always can recite the dialogue from <laughs> The Princess Bride um, in unison. I often read The Cremation of Sam McGee, which is a poem that a lot of people learn in eighth grade. So I don't know. It's just a chance to bring – I mean, community is hard enough to form. And reading ghost stories for my students, along with Charlie, uh, was a great way of uh, bringing people together. Charlie, who, of course, died this fall um, after teaching at Colby for something like, I don't even know, 50 years. And I'm going to try to keep the tradition going next year, but it's going to have to change a little bit without him. But what I loved about that was the way in which it celebrated telling stories. It was a way of bringing people together to share a story, to share that experience of being a little bit scared and a little bit joyful. It's one, one of the things that stories can do is bring people together and um, I hope I can keep that tradition going. Um, so on the Colby campus, there's this strange monument that encourages students to invent anti-gravity devices. Do you know what the story is with that? <laughs> That's the Babson anti-gravity stone. And in fact, um, it, it's funny. It's, it's, it's one of the genuinely eccentric things on that campus. Apparently, there's this guy whose name was Babson, and he had a gazillion dollars, and he gave he was going to give the gazillion dollars to the school, but only on the condition that the school put up a monument saying, we need to discover how to harness the forces of anti-gravity, because that way we can reduce airplane accidents. So there's a, there is, in fact, on the Colby campus, a, the, the Babson Anti-Gravity Stone says, you know, this stone is placed by the Babson Anti-Gravity Foundation reminding us all of the blessings forthcoming when a way to utilize the powers of anti-gravity is at last found. So he gave like one-tenth of his fortune to Colby. I think I might have the story wrong, but he gave the rest of it to a college that's now called Babson. There's a Babson College in Massachusetts, which is a business college. And they got most of the money. We got the stone. <laughs> um, but the stone is still there. Um, and uh, they keep moving it around because they keep putting up buildings wherever they – they keep moving it to a more and more obscure place, and then a building goes up there. So I don't know where it is now. Maybe it's floating. Hey, you know, little known fact, the, the UK title of, uh, of J.K. Rowling's first novel is Harry Potter and the Babson Anti-Gravity Stone. I don't know if you guys knew that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. The Anti-Gravity Stone. Well, we should all be so lucky to discover an Anti-Gravity Stone. <laughs> Okay, great. I mean, you mentioned the um, Falcon Quinn sequel you're working on. I mean, do, do you want to mention anything about what you're working on or well, what's coming it, out? Or 
So let's see. Um, Falcon Quinn is out right now in hardcover, and it will be Falcon Quinn and the Black Mirror, the first book, comes out in paperback in May of 2011. Same week, uh, the second book, Falcon Quinn and the Crimson Vapor, comes out in hardcover. So that's 2011, um, paper for the first book and hardcover for the second. And then in 2012, I have a new novel for grown-ups, which is my first my first adult novel in, in many years. And um, that's coming out from Broadway, which is uh, uh, an imprint of Random House. And the title of that book is I'll Give You Something to Cry About. And the year after that, 2013, will be the, thir- the, um, the 10th anniversary if she's not there. And tentatively, we're looking forward to a 10th anniversary edition of that book with a new, I think there'll be an afterword by Anna Quindlin, in which she interviews my spouse, Deirdre, and also I get a chance to write just kind of an update of what's happened to everybody and all the characters. So that's the, the near future. That plus the, um, uh, the It Gets Better anthology is coming out in uh, the early part of 2011. And uh, that's it on the Jenny Boylan front. And I just I want to encourage any of your listeners who want to know more to please stop by um, jenniferboylan.net. You can learn about everything happening in the Jenny Boylan universe. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Jennifer Finney Boylan for joining us on the show. Okay, so at the end of our last episode, we asked if people could go on iTunes and rate our podcast, and at that time, eight people had rated the show, and now we're up to 23, so thanks to everyone who went ahead and did that. Um, And if you haven't rated the show, please consider opening up iTunes and typing in Geek's Guide to the Galaxy and doing that. Yeah, we also want to thank Brilliance Audio for sponsoring the shows for the past three months. Um, You know, they came along at a really crucial time last year, and their support was really important in convincing us to keep doing the show. Uh, we've now run through all the ads they contracted for, and so we'll need to start looking into maybe finding some new um, sponsors. But for the moment, um, you can enjoy this ad-free episode of Geek's Guide. And as always, if you want to help us out, you can uh, you can go to our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on the donate button and send us some money. Okay, so now we're going to be talking about monsters with sort of a special emphasis on sympathetic portrayals of monsters. Um, and so, you know, Jenny mentioned uh, Wicked by Gregory Maguire. And that's sort of, you know, the Wizard of Oz told from the point of view of the Wicked Witch of the West. And it's funny, you know, I listened to an interview uh, with with Gregory Maguire and they asked him, you know, how did you get the idea for that book? And he said that he just got really interested in sort of the question of evil and what makes a person evil and thought about sort of writing a story from the point of view of Hitler. And that was the initial idea. And then he was just kind of like, actually, that, that would probably require a lot of research. <laughs> Maybe I'll just make it the Wicked Witch of the West instead. <laughs> And I don't know. I've always just thought that was kind of funny. That uh, <laughs> and that's where that that's where that story idea came from. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, the for Wicked, I wouldn't have actually thought of that as a as a you know sympathetic portrayal of monsters. I mean, because I don't think of her as a monster. I mean, she's a villain certainly. Um, and I mean, I guess I guess she is sort of monstrous. But I mean, like when I think monster, I think like you know, like monster, like like a minotaur or a, you know a dragon or something. Like those are monsters, right? You don't think a witch is a monster? Not really. That's just a, it's a you know, I mean, a, a with witch green will, skin who gets melted by water and stuff. Well, no, she just flies like, around know, she, on a she, broom she and just, has flying monkey, witch. scary monkey monsters. I mean, she's just a person. She's a, she's just an <laughs> evil person who can do magic things. All right. Well, I'm still going to talk about it because I. Okay, fine. Because I thought about it. I, I already thought about this. But, uh, you know, there was a um, 
this this bookstore event I went to years ago that was really really good. It was one of the best bookstore events I went to. It was at, at Barnes and Noble at Union Square, and they actually had Gregory Maguire there with uh, some of the cast members from the Broadway production of Wicked. And so how it worked is he would get up and read, you know, like a, like a, I don't know, 15 or 20 minute section, you know, a, a scene from the novel. And then they would perform the song that had been adapted from that scene in the novel. And it was just really cool. And so you sort of go back and forth with him reading and them singing. And, you know, it was sort of, it was free. It was, you know, 45 minutes long or so. And I actually, I would, you know, I kind of enjoyed that more than an actual Broadway show, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> most of the Broadway shows I go to, you know, like, I watched the first the first half and I'm I'm like wow that was great and then then they're like oh no but there's still a whole another there's a whole another half you know hmm. and I'm kind of go I'm I'm usually about ready you know I'm ready to go do something else by the time intermission rolls around but you know so this bookstore event you know 45 minutes you know you're in and out it was it was a good time and I wish they would do more uh, stuff like that I guess it's not not every fantasy novel gets a Broadway uh, production uh, associated with it but unfortunately. <laughs> I guess I mean I, th- I guess we interviewed right um, Kat Valenti and, and Eric Garcia. I think both mentioned that they sort of incorporate music into their readings and sort of mm-hmm. you know liven it up a little bit. Yeah, actually, um, we went to a, I don't know if you were there for this one, but uh, you know the KGB reading series in New York uh, at the KGB bar. At the KGB bar, they do this thing called Fantastic Fiction, which is you know um, uh, science fiction and fantasy readers uh, reading their stories. And, and so um, this author, uh, Brian Francis Slattery, he wrote the book uh, Spaceman Blues, and then later he wrote one called Liberation. Um, he he did a reading there, and, and I guess he's some sort of uh, he's a musician of some kind. I'm not sure what what you call his genre, but um, you know he 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 was there uh, for the reading, and, and he also incorporated some music into it, and, and I thought it worked really well. I mean. Um, I kind of wished that I had a lyric sheet so I could have followed along uh, better with what he was what what he was singing. But I mean, it was really really cool. I mean, because it was um, you know related to the book that he was reading from, and uh, and it just had a very cool vibe about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could definitely see that being something that would be uh, be fun if we could see it more often. And then you know, Jenny was also talking about Lord of the Rings, and you know, speaking of like sort of looking at things, you know, sort of taking a sympathetic view of of the monsters. That sort of made me think of uh, this Andy Duncan story called Senator Bilbo. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I read an interview with him and, and he was saying that, uh, you know, he just came across this odd historical fact that there was this actual, you know, historical figure named Senator Bilbo, who was a sort mm-hmm. of like arch segregationist. And so Andy Duncan was like, okay, come on, I can't be the first fantasy writer who's noticed <laughs> that there was the Senator Bilbo guy. And so he, he sort of poked around and couldn't find anybody else who would, you know, who would use that. And he's just like, jackpot, <laughs> <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> And so in this story, you know, it's like after the War of the Ring and everything, and, uh, you know, the the orcs are being integrated into Hobbit society, and Bilbo is just sort of this angry old politician. You just can't get over the fact that the, the orcs are living among among them. And uh, I don't know, it's just a, a really uh, interesting, memorable story. And it was actually, uh, you know, performed on the podcast, little podcast. It's episode 32. So if you're interested in checking out that story, you know, you can go look it up online, and we'll have a link uh, in the show notes. Yeah, actually, how did they get around the copyright issues over that? Because, I mean, Lord of the Rings is not public domain. Um, and, I mean, that doesn't sound like it was parody, per se. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, it, I mean, does he get away with it because it, because it, it falls under parody? Or? It, sound, it sort of sounds like parody to me. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, uh, I mean, yeah. I haven't read it, so I don't know. But, I mean, it, I mean it kind of, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I mean, just because it doesn't sound like it's inherently just, like, funny or whatever. It's just, like, you know. But it's sort of, you know, it's sort of, like, critiquing the the way that the orcs are portrayed and, yeah, and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I think, you know, um, when you're talking about 
you know, fair use and copyright and stuff, the parody stuff, it's pretty broad. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, and like, I think anything that you can even sort of plausibly argue is parody is covered. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but anyway, but you know, speaking of Lord of the Rings, um, I mean that 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 I agree that was sort of an interesting um thing to discover that like when someone uh, pointed out to me like that that Lord of the Rings can be a little bit like you know or it can be kind of racist towards the orcs you know and it's like because they're just portrayed in this totally negative light and like you don't really get to see them as as a potential sentient race it's just like they're these evil monsters you know and it's like oh huh yeah that's true you know and uh, and I mean I I mean I grew up with orcs in D and D. Um, uh, more so than with Lord of the Rings, you know? So, I mean, it's like, and, and I mean, and it's funny because in D&D, &D, like, you know, you can play a half orc, but you can't play an orc. And, and, but I always, I always was sort of drawn to playing, uh, to wanting to play monsters in, in D&D, &D, you know? So it's like, uh, I mean, this, this, the subject of this episode is actually of particular interest to me, but, um, I mean, we can talk about more, we can talk about that a little bit more later, like why we're drawn to this, these sort of portrayals of monsters, but, um, you know, actually the very first, computer role-playing game that i really played a lot was was this game called fantasy it was you know p-h-a-n-t-a-s-i-e i'm right with you there brother I, I love that game and you remember how you know in that you know you can pick to be a human elf dwarf like the usual mm -hmm. stuff but then there's also this option for random and it yeah. just like throws out these like you know weird monsters like minotaurs and trolls and ogres and, and stuff and so you can have them as members of your party and uh yeah, I always love that. Like, I always, I like would not start a new game in fantasy unless I had a minotaur in my party. <laughs> Although I think actually, wasn't it? Didn't you need to have a minotaur to like to complete one of the quests or something? I think you did. Yeah, I think there's like a dungeon where you can only get into it if you have a minotaur in your party or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. But I mean, one of the and so like the the a lot of the random monsters, you know, could be a lot stronger. You know, mm -hmm. like a, like an ogre or something could be a lot stronger than a human could. Uh, so it was good to have them as fighters in your party. But then you know there were drawbacks to having them too, and and one of them was that. There was like so much like discrimination against them that, you know, when it came time to whenever in that game, whenever you went up a level, you would have to pay somebody to train you to get up to the next level. And so you'd be like, you know, you'd go to the training hall and say, I'd like you to train my my human, <laughs> you know, and they're like, that'll be like 25 gold. And then you're like, OK, now I'd like you to train my ogre. And they're like, that'll be 12,000 gold. Hmm. There was also this uh, I haven't read this book, but there was there's this book uh, called Throne of Bones by Brian McNaughton. And I just, you know, I came across a, you know, I came across it like on Amazon one time and I just noticed this quote um, by Alan Rogers and he, and he says, imagine what Tolkien's Lord of the Rings would have been like if Tolkien had tried to tell that story sympathetically from the point of view of the human denizens of Mordor and you'll have the slightest sense of what you're about to wade into. Hmm. And I was, I've always been very intrigued by that description. Uh, so if anyone's, ever, if anyone's read that book, actually, you know, post a comment and let us know, uh, you know, what you thought of it. That just reminds me that, you know, uh, this author, Stan Nichols, he wrote this book called Orcs. And uh, I remember, and I guess it was published in the UK a while ago, but then like uh, it was just re-released here in the US, um, you know, like a year or two ago. And uh, and I remember when it, when I first, when it first came out and the publicity copies were going out, like um, the publicist like sent a, he had like a little business card, like in the, in, inside the book. And it just, and he, and he just wrote like Orcs in all capital letters with an exclamation point <laughs> on it. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what, <laughs> this is exactly the right tone to strike. But um you know, and I, I haven't, I haven't read, I haven't read the book. It's actually an omnibus, I think, of like three different uh, short novels. But um, so I got the book. Um, uh, I mean, the galley just like looked like a regular galley, but when the finished book came out, it had like red onion skin, or it had it had onion skin pages, and the edges were all red. So, and then like if you held it open in your hand, like it was just, it was like very soft, so it just like flopped open. It's like this is like the orc bible. <laughs> like it was, 
it was awesome. And, and, you know, I, was, I, I actually, um, I contacted the author and I was like, cause I was writing for sci-fi.com at the time. And I was like, you know, would you be interested in doing like sort of a joke interview with this? Like if, as if I interviewed you and as if this was actually the orc Bible. Um, and he was kind of into it, but then, uh, he got busy or something. So we never did it. But, you know, I, I just, like when I thought of that, I was like, well, what would orc Jesus do? <laughs> that's what I, that's what I want to know. Uh, I mean, some other sort of computer games that kind of came to mind is, uh, there was this game called Dungeon Keeper. I don't know if you remember this one. Uh, I don't that one. it was kind of like Sim Dungeon sort of where, you know, in most games, you know, you have a party of heroes and you go into dungeons and kill monsters and get treasure and stuff. And, and in Dungeon Keeper, you know, you're sort of like the guy in charge of the dungeon you you're sort of expanding your dungeon and summoning more and more monsters and stuff and these heroes keep busting into your dungeon and stealing your treasure and stuff and you have to you know just <laughs> defend defend it and uh there's it's kind of this cool dungeon ecology simulator almost where you know the different monsters like don't get along with each other and you have to keep like the vampires away from these guys because they'll eat them and you know i don't know it's just a really uh really interesting idea i actually just saw that they're uh they're remaking this. Um, mm -hmm. They're making a Dungeon Keeper online, but it's a Chinese company. It looks like they're only releasing it in China. I don't know if any, anyone in China listens to this podcast, but if you're out there, you know, keep an eye out for that. Hey, uh, you know, that, that kind of reminded me. Um, I mean, it's not it's not really about a sympathetic portrayal of monsters, but do you remember this game called Mail Order Monsters? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. That game was so awesome. It was like. It's like you would build your own monsters, you know, and it's like, uh, I mean, you could have like a, a number of different templates, like, you know, in the humanoid was one, but then like you could also have like this dinosaur thing as a template. And there was all these different monster type templates, but then like you would buy, you would buy all these like augmentations for the monster. And like, so you can basically take that template and then turn it into almost any kind of monster um, by adding different powers to it. Well, like, you know, back when I was, you know, when I was a kid, and I was really into role-playing games. I actually, I, I sort of came up with a thing like that. I was trying to make this sort of thing where you would roll dice to create monsters, you know, where, you know, you would roll, like, how many heads does it have? And, you know, what kind of, you know, like the head of this kind of animal or whatever. And, you know, see what kind of, like, weird monsters, you know, would just come out of, uh, you know, rolling the dice and combining different bits and pieces and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I mean, sort of what got me onto that was that I had come across this quote... I can't. I think it was a poet. Um, I can't remember who it was, but he had said something like he was he was sort of bemoaning the limitations of the human imagination, and he was kind of saying um, he was saying like you know if you've seen an eagle, then somebody says you know there's a purple eagle. Even if you've never seen a purple eagle, you can imagine what a purple eagle would look like. But that if you'd never seen an eagle, someone you couldn't just summon that image out of your imagination. That the imagination can only sort of you know, transform things or combine things that it's already familiar with. Mm -hmm. and, and so I spent a lot of time thinking about that and, you know, is that really true? And I sort of decided it really is true to a substantial extent. I sort of went through, you know, because I used to be just really like obsessive about collecting monster, those like Dungeons and Dragons monster manuals. Mm -hmm. You know, I had like every single one and I sort of went through it and then and I was like looking for monsters that, you know, weren't just, because most of the monsters, you know, like, you know, it's like a giant this or, Mm -hmm. It's a this with the head of a this, or, you know, it's a this with two heads or whatever. And, you know, it's like, how many monsters are there in here that somebody just dreamed up out of, you know, out of their imagination? And there's mm -hmm. really very few, you know. I mean, that really is, you know, a, a real limit of, of just the, the way that the mind mind works. Well, I guess it's also kind of partially because 
like if you're if you're if you're creating this monster for the purpose of being in a story or something like even even in like you know old times not like modern novels or whatever but you know like in in ancient greece or whatever so you say you're 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 you know you're telling a story for uh incorporating you know incorporating the gods and everything into something like the odyssey or whatever you know it's like how are you going to explain to people what this monster looks like if you're not going to be comparing it to things that really exist you know yeah, so, yeah. i mean that's part of the problem it's like you know it, you know if maybe in the modern day that would be easier because you know you could use digital effects or whatever to make something really come to life fully or, or i mean i guess even back then i mean they could have tried to draw you know something that would depict it but yeah yeah no i mean that's that's a real issue is how do you describe something if you're if you're a novelist or whatever how do you how would you describe in words something that's you know doesn't have any earth, earthly analogs but certainly you know visual artists as mm -hmm. you're saying could do it and like like there's a monster in dungeons and dragons called an owl bear <laughs> you know it's kind of a weird thing where it's just like a bear with the head of an owl yeah and you know and so like somebody like say there was no such thing as bears and no such thing as owls you know could anybody mm -hmm. like draw something you know could anybody come up with an owl bear and just draw like an owl's head i mean it's very hard you know mm -hmm. but i mean certainly it could it could be done i mean you know yeah um okay so i mean on an earlier i guess it was in the back in the naomi naomi novik uh episode you know i, I had given john this little pop quiz on uh you know, what, what color dragons, uh, you know, breathe different substances. And that was a lot of fun. So I thought I would spring on him another pop quiz. Uh-oh. Involving, uh, you know, some Dungeons and Dragons monsters. Oh, well, I haven't looked at a monster manual in quite some time. I hope I'm up to it. Yeah. So uh, I guess we'll start off. Well, we'll start off with an, with an easy one. Um, so this is a monster with the body of a man and the head of a bull. Well, that's a minotaur. Very good. Yeah, I figured Minotaur you. Minotaur is one of my it's one of my favorite <laughs> monsters. So. I figured you'd get that because you already mentioned Minotaurs, but uh, yeah, yeah. That's what, yeah, that's sort of a warm up question. All right. Okay, so these tall green human humanoid monsters can uh, regenerate their limbs unless you kill it with fire. Hmm, that's a troll. All right, very good, very good. All right, this one's a little trickier. Uh, so these uh, six legged black pumas have two tentacles on their backs and always seem to be. Two feet away from where they actually are. Displacer beast. Oh, very, very good, very good. All right. How about a giant metal bowl that breathes poison gas? Uh, a giant metal what? Bowl. Bowl. Bull. Bowl, like a minotaur-headed bowl. Oh, I see a bowl. A giant metal bowl. Um, I don't know what that one is. Yeah, it's a tough one. They're called a gorgon. Oh, oh, okay. Hmm. In Dungeons and Dragons, and it's kind of funny because in yeah, Greek right. mythology, a, you know, Medusa was a gorgon, mm -hmm. and she was not a giant metal bull that breathes poison <laughs> gas. Right, right. No, I, I, I do vaguely remember those now uh, from the, you know, the monster manual, but I do remember that they were metal. Why, why are they metal? That's weird. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's harder to kill a giant bull if it's metal. <laughs> I guess <laughs> makes sense. It's a, it's a convenient uh, storage. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, for all the poison gas inside. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, they don't need any bone structure because they're made of metal. But it always just drove me crazy. It's like, no, that's not what a Gorgon is. Yeah, right. And uh, I, I have a feeling it's one of those things where, you know, somebody was just like, okay, I've got this cool idea for a monster. It's like a metal bowl. Hmm. What's a good monster name? Gorgon. You know, and it's kind of like you've sort of like, you think a lot of times, like, especially if you're a writer, it's a real danger where you like come up with something and you think that you just made it up, but actually it's something you heard somewhere, you know, mm -hmm. I have a feeling that that's what happened there. Uh, it's kind of funny too, actually. In, in in the Ultima series, the the evil bad guy that you have to kill in Ultima Three is named Exodus. 
you know, like, oh, right. like the book of the Bible. <laughs> and, yeah, they, yeah. and they said like, yeah, we just, we just thought it was a cool sounding word. We didn't realize, you know, that it was, it was from the Bible. Um, all right. So our next monster, these are sort of uh, large levitating orbs with a giant eye, one giant eye. And then Beholder. And then, wait, let me finish. And then tentacles with little eyes on them. Yeah, very good, Beholder. Beholder. I actually, I have a Beholder miniature oh, that no. I painted. And, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, as we record this, I, I just, I'm finished. I'm in the middle of uh, moving from New Jersey to California. Uh, I mean, I'm here in California, but my stuff is on the way to New, to, to California. Um, but so, uh, you know, I just had to pack all my miniatures up. And, uh, but yeah, one of them is, one of them is a Beholder. Although one of my miniatures actually escaped. I wonder if you're going to ask um, about this monster, but... Uh, one of my miniatures had fallen behind my bookcase, and so I had to pack it separately, and I just took it in my suitcase. So <laughs> um, ask me about that after the pop quiz is done, in case you don't ask about it. Okay, okay. Yeah, we just have a couple couple more monsters here. Okay. But actually, you know, as I was saying, like, like the Beholder was one of the monsters, you know, in the in the monster manual where, you know, it's sort of a, sort of less of an analog to anything in the real world. You know, that mm -hmm. this, this is more something that sprang it just out of somebody's imagination. I mean, it's kind of parts, bits and pieces of other things, but... It is kind of a, a more sort of inventive kind of monster. Mm -hmm. Unlike our next one. Okay, so a chimera combines bits and pieces of these three animals. Oh, um, let's see. It's a lion, right? Mm -hmm. A lion, a dragon, and a, a goat. <laughs> All right, very good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dragon or serpent. Uh, Okay. And, yeah, right. uh, yeah, and a goat. Yep. Actually, I have a I have a chimera miniature as well. Oh, all right. But it's not like in the room or anything. So I. <laughs> that's not the one that I found. Yeah, the goat. The goat's a little hard to remember because it's not yeah. like a fearsome monster or anything. Right. It doesn't make sense. It's like you know, oh, it's a lion. Okay, that's. a <laughs> dragon. Okay, yeah, that's scary. Goat. What? What? What's the goat doing? There? Does it make milk? Chimera milk. I bet that's awesome. That's a rare delicacy. Yeah, we'll have to start a microbrew or something called yeah. Chimera Milk, or you know, somebody should do that. Yeah, or may, or like sell Chimera cheese. <laughs> like, oh, you haven't had a burger until you had a with some Chimera cheese on it. There was actually uh, a guy in in the writing group I used to belong to in New York had been, you know, like in the Merchant Marines or something, and sailed around the world and was in some country somewhere and and went into this bar and you know ordered some food or something, and they said, "Do you want some something to drink with that?" and uh, He's like, sure. And they're like, okay, well, we have milk. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. And they just turn around. There's like this goat like standing there. And they just like milk, <laughs> milk the goat right in front of him and give him the goat milk. Wow. <laughs> that's a little gross. <laughs> um, but uh, before we get off the subject of chimeras, it, it should be pointed out that um, if you were like us when, or at least when you were like me, if you were like me as a kid, uh, you thought it was pronounced uh, chimera because that's how it's spelled. It's like C-H-I-M-E-R-A. So um, it wasn't until much later that I learned, oh, it's chimera. Mm -hmm. So, in case you're not clear what the hell we're talking about, it's it's the Chimera thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, so if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons and there's an attractive woman who wants to have sex with you in, <laughs> in the game, she's almost certainly one of these evil demons who will s drain away your experience points. Uh, succubus? Very good. And uh, what would be a male equivalent? Mm, is that an incubus? Yeah, very good. Yeah, well... You've uh, you really know your monsters here. All right. All right. Two two more. All okay. right. Okay. I've got I've got a, I've got a good one that I'm going to ask you about if if. You <laughs> to 
All right. So, um, okay. So these are like dragons, but instead of four limbs, they only have two limbs. And I think they have a stinging tail too. In Dungeons and Dragons, they do. They only have two limbs. Yeah. So like a dragon without, like imagine like a dragon, right? But without like arms, basically. <laughs> um, wait, can you describe it more? Or say it again? Yeah. So it's like, it's like, a, like imagine a dragon. Yeah. And then chop off its arms. Right. Okay. And that's that's it. <laughs> um, no, I, I don't remember starts, that one. Starts with a W. Oh wait, a wyvern. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. okay. I didn't. I didn't remember they only had two limbs. Was because because are you not counting like wings or? Right. They have wings. Oh. Oh. Okay. Gotcha. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I. I, I was just having trouble conceptualizing what this monster looked like. Um. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Yeah. So a wyvern. Okay. Okay, and last of all, uh, these are uh, reptiles that will turn you to stone with their gaze. Uh, basilisk. Very good, very good. Wow, I did really well. Yeah, yeah, I'm impressed. Uh, okay, so here, here's the one I was going to ask you. All right, bring uh, it on. Is this your, this is your miniature? No, no, this is not my miniature, okay. but it's something that I thought of when you were talking. Um, uh, so these, these, uh, these monsters are like sort of, they look like tiger men. Um, but they have like these, they have all these weird magical powers. Oh, they, they, is that a, like, like, like a Rakshasha or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. that's it. Yeah, Rakshasa. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so those, those, uh, come out of like a real mythology though, apparently. Um, like I think it's out of, uh, like Indian mythology. Mm -hmm. So, um, I thought that was cool. Like when I discovered them in, in like other fiction, it was like, oh, hey, I have <laughs> those from D. &D. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I always liked those. They were, I always thought they were, they were a cool monster. Uh, well, I, I guess I can quiz you on this one, although it's pretty easy. Um, so the miniature I have is it's it's a wizard who has become undead and stores his soul in a jar. That is a lich. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have a I have a lich here. You that, see, I know my monsters well enough that I did well on the pop quiz. Plus, I asked questions. <laughs> I gave you a pop quiz in return. Yeah. Yeah. Very. We are awesome. Actually, there was another one I, I thought you might ask about, but I, I don't remember I don't remember it well enough to really quiz you about it. But I'll just ask: like, do, you, do you remember this one? It's called the Teresque. Yeah, yeah, it's like a super hard to kill demon. Yeah, I mean, like I, all I remember about it is like I mean they're like gigantic or something. They're like sort of like a like a giant elephant or whatever, right? In terms of size, but then it's just oh, like I think this they're bigger than that. Well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, but it, like that sort of scope, mm. it, but um. But you know, and like they just they just like leave a path of destruction in their wake, uh, you know, as they travel across the land, and like they're basically immortal. And uh, yeah, so I just always remember that they were like I think it's like actually literally the hardest monster to kill in D and D. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and okay. certainly in the first, you know, in yeah, in right, the second added, second edition, you know, the first couple supplement kind of thing. Yeah, they may have added more harder monsters since then, but uh, it's hard to imagine that there would be anything harder to kill than that. <laughs> All right, there was just one other video game I wanted to mention that I, I this is just a, a new game that came out and it's called Horde and it's like this dragon game where you actually you play dragons and it's like a multiplayer game and so you have your different dragons and the goal is just to be the dragon with the biggest horde at the end of the game and so you fly around you know like burning villages and you know like kidnapping there's like these like royal carriages and you like swoop down on them and kidnap their princesses and then ransom them off hmm. and stuff and uh, I don't know. It just you know, it just looks like a really fun game to, to you know again from to play sort of as a monster from the monster's point of view. That sounds awesome. Uh, I I don't know if you're planning to mention this later, but I I was gonna say we we can't talk about uh, sympathetic portrayals of monsters without mentioning Monsters Inc. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I mean, uh, you saw that, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was that was that was that was great. I mean, that was that's that's uh, that was Pixar, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the the earlier ones. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I remember I really really dug that one. Well, it's just kind of like they take you know like monsters who are hiding in your closet and and scaring you and kind of you know you see them as just kind of like working stiffs, you know, like nine to five. <laughs> that's their job, and you know, yeah, it's yeah. just kind of funny to look at it that way. All right, but so moving into the realm of the classics for a bit, hmm. um, you know, like speaking of like telling the story from the, the point of view of the monster, because I'd always heard of um, John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. I'd always just heard that described as sort of like Lucifer's side of the story. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I've heard a lot of people sort of refer to it that way and talk about it that way. And so, I, you know, when I finally went and read it, and that's not actually what it is, what it is really, you know, I mean, um, it's just it's sort of the story you know, of, of the, of Adam and Eve and the, the fall and the war in heaven and stuff, but it's not meant to be, you know, Lucifer's side of the story. It's, it's just that it kind of comes across that way because he's such, he's so, such a more interesting, such a much more interesting character. Um, this sort of led William Blake to, to famously say that, that Milton was of the devil's party without knowing it. But I mean, this is just a really, I think this is a really big challenge for, for a writer um, is that, so often the villains are just a lot more compelling than the heroes. And so like, you know, Lucifer in the poem, I mean, he's very passionate and driven and he really wants something and characters, you know, tend to be a lot more interesting when they want something. Whereas all the like quote unquote good characters are all just kind of, kind of boring. They're kind of, you know, they're completely good and they're completely confident of their own righteousness. And they're going to tell you about it for 10 pages at a time. And it's it's just really hard to, to be that engaged with, with, with a character like that. And, you know, like when it's, it's sort of the same thing with Dante, right? When people, when you think of Dante, you think of hell, you know, and, and Dante, he actually wrote, he wrote about hell and purgatory and heaven. It's just that the hell is mm. a lot more interesting, you know, and it's mm-hmm. sort of the only part any, any, anyone sort of remembers. And, you know, like, I mean, dystopian fiction, you know, is a lot more common than utopian fiction. There's almost no utopian fiction in the sense of, actually showing a, a really actual actual nice place to live where everything's great because how do you mm-hmm. even set a story there you know what, what's the conflict and you know you know when thomas moore wrote utopia i mean the word utopia literally means no place you know like mm-hmm. this is something that couldn't really even exist i guess you, you were saying like maybe we should talk about why are we drawn to stories you know why are we sort of drawn to stories that are sympathetic to the monsters i mean that might be part of it there it's just that that we, you know, that stories need conflict and mm-hmm. stories involving monsters have more conflict than stories involving people who have no problems, you know? Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think we all feel like sort of a, a monster at some point in our lives. Right. I mean, especially us who grew up as geeks, you know, we feel like, you know, the sort of outcast or, or whatever. And, 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 you know, uh, depending on how, uh, how, how rough your geekhood was as a child, you know, you might be, uh, might be like, oh, well, what's wrong with me? You know, why, you know, why, why don't, uh, why do people make fun of me or whatever and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it's definitely easy for, you know, I can, I can imagine, you know, plenty of geeks, you know, having that, um, you know, identifying with the monster because it's like, you know, oh, well, the monster is outcast like me. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's a, a writer, Sam Butler, and he, uh, I don't know, for a while he had, he had these t shirts that said, like, we are the orcs. And like, speaking of orcs again, and I think he even had, he had a, a website, like, we are the orcs.com or something. I don't know if it's yeah, yeah. still there, but, you know, just making that very explicit that, you know, when you're sort of an outsider and, you know, you do sort of look at any story, you know, where, where the good guys are fighting the bad guys and sort of wonder, you know, who would I be in this story? And, 
am I getting this the straight story about how bad these people are, or is it just sort of like like people I know? Do they just not understand? Are they just is it just about misunderstanding or people being judgmental or, or things like that? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like sort of another classic thing I wanted to talk about was Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I kind of you know like um, you know, I mean speaking of Jenny Boyle, and I sort of associate this with her because you know I uh, I went to Ireland uh, you know because because she was uh, you know, sort of the faculty uh, person there, and and so I, and I took this whole class like on. On Frankenstein, basically, the, the guy was sort of a, a Mary Shelley scholar, and uh, it was it was it's a really interesting. Uh, it's sort of beyond the scope of uh, of this podcast right now, but uh, I mean, you should really uh, look into Mary Shelley's life. I mean, she just had a fascinating life. Uh, you know, her father was a, a leading political philosopher and novelist, William Godwin, and her mother was a, a famous early feminist, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, and uh, you know, she married. <laughs> the uh you know like one of the most famous poets uh of the day uh percy shelley and um there's just all sorts of like family drama and and stuff like that i mean like you know like her father uh you know had been sort of a, a political radical and had advocated the abolition of marriage and free love and stuff like that and then uh you know then his daughter falls in love with this this poet who unfortunately is already married to somebody else and uh and the dad's pissed off and and Percy's Shelley says, Hey, I thought you were all about free love. And, <laughs> and the dad's like, not with my daughter, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and back in the day, I mean, like dating, like dating a romantic, <laughs> romantic poet. It was like dating the drummer from Motley Crue or something. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> you know, it's it like the bad boys of Europe, you know? And, uh, but there's this, this really interesting story where they, um, you know, they were, um, vacationing and it was like the, I'm trying to remember there. I think there'd been like a big volcano eruption or something. And so uh, the weather was really rainy that whole year. It was like a year without sunshine or something. And so they're all kind of trapped inside and, uh, you know, had been, uh, you know, just sort of listening to German ghost stories and things like that. And, you know, just to keep themselves entertained, they thought maybe they would uh, have a contest and like each try to come up with a ghost story. And um, I think, you know, she was very, I think she was like 19 or something at the time. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, obviously sort of being married to this really famous poet, a lot of people in subsequent subsequent years said, oh, well, he must have actually been the genius behind Frankenstein. And she probably didn't do much, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but then I read this uh, this analysis where actually the um, sort of the version of Frankenstein that most people have read was actually one that Percy Shelley kind of rewrote. And uh, and the scholar was sort of going through and comparing the two. And, and and Frankenstein sort of has this reputation for being kind of like overwritten and purple and breathless and stuff. And uh, and so this scholar was arguing that actually a lot of that stuff is the the changes that, that Percy made. And that if you go back to the original manuscript, it's actually much better. Mm. And so this this guy who taught this class, he actually had us read the original 1818 manuscript. And it was it's great. It's just a really good story. So, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, and I, I really enjoyed that class. I really enjoyed that that novel. And I definitely recommend people check it out. I mean, particularly if you only, you're, you know, you sort of only have this idea of what the story of Frankenstein is, this kind of like from the movies, you know, mm -hmm. the novel is, com is completely different. It's, there's no, there's no like castle and villagers and torches and stuff like that. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a really uh, mm. much different thing. It was funny because, you know, I got the book and uh, there's a cover of this Arctic ice field on the cover. And I was like, what does this have to do with Frankenstein? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and then you start reading your book. And you're like, oh, wow, this is, this is not what I was expecting at all. Yeah, so um, is it possible to get that original eighteen eighteen manuscript? Like, just like, is there is there book versions of that that you can buy? Yeah, there? yeah, yeah. I think if you go like just if you go on Amazon, I think there are ones you know where it's yeah that it's it's just like clearly marked that this this mm -hmm. is the the eighteen eighteen manuscript. 
it's funny i, I always um i always wonder about uh like in that case it sounds like maybe it was it was for the best but um uh, you know that uh you know they they unearthed the original manuscripts but um in in a lot of these cases uh, you, you know you see an author's preferred edition and it's like oh um so what does that mean that they you know just oh now this is the this is the version that they wrote and rejected all the editor's changes now and so it's just uh, you know it's like 20% longer but not necessarily any better or more interesting. Well, uh, but, that's you know I I'm kind of curious though cuz uh like there are some books that you can still get you know the original version and I'd be curious to compare to see what the what the actual preferred edition incorporates that the other one didn't. That's actually another kind of interesting thing with Frankenstein actually because you know, everyone sort of remembers the theme of Frankenstein as being the sort of like there are some things man was not meant to know, mm-hmm. you know, kind of science meddling in nature where it shouldn't and stuff. And apparently, you know, they re- she released the novel initially. And I mean, it was just excoriated by critics. They just they just absolutely hated it. They thought it was just grotesque mm-hmm. and sick and stuff. And so in response to that, she rewrote it to put in more more of that kind of, you know, oh, why did I trespass against God's plan kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, that really kind of ruins the book. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just like, you know, the more you can just get back to the, the initial thing, you know, that she wrote in, in this initial flash of brilliance, you know, the, the better it is. So going from Frankenstein, this is a little less of a classic, but uh, just when I think about monsters, I, I, I just, you know, as I'm sort of drawing up my list, I can't help writing this down. Is this, this movie I watched as a kid called My Demon Lover. Huh. Because the premise of this this movie, it's, it's sort of like The Incredible Hulk a little bit, but it's, it's this guy and he was, when he was a, like 14 or something, he was fooling around with this, this girl and her, you know, grand medium grandmother put a curse on him. And now every time he becomes sexually aroused, he turns oh. into a monster. Oh, right, right. And, <laughs> and so he has to I just... I hate when that happens. He just sort of has to... Well, it's got kind of interesting metaphorical resonances, right? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. uh you know, so he just sort of has to like live his life, you know, without love and try to avoid, you know, anything that's going to turn him on because, you know, then he'll start turning into this monster. I don't I don't remember the the movie particularly well. I couldn't tell if it's good or not, but just something about that idea has always uh, has always really stuck with me. And uh, uh, I don't know, maybe if, if someone's watched that recently, uh, you know, post a comment and let us know what you thought, if it's worth uh, if it's worth rewatching. I just wanted to point out that uh, actually, if anybody's interested in reading Falcon Quinn and the Black Mirror, um, I actually reviewed that for Audible. So if you want to go check it out, um, you can see my review over there. It just go to Audible and just search for Falcon Quinn and the Black Mirror, and you should be able to see it there. Um, and and you know, I specifically audi- reviewed the audiobook, obviously. So, but uh, you know, I, I passed judgment on the book as well as as the audio narration. So, and I liked it. So, I mean, I, I would recommend uh, people checking it out. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to mention too that, I mean, you know, maybe people who, uh, you know, tuned in for the Jennifer Finney Boylan interview are kind of interested in, in, in gender issues and stuff like that. And so I just wanted to make sure that everyone knows that there's, there's this award in science fiction called the Tiptree Award, um, which, which deals with sort of gender issues in science fiction. And so if you're, if you're interested in that, you should definitely, uh, you know, look up that award and look up some of the, you know, the, the books that have won that award. And there's a, there's a website for it, um, called, uh, it's a uh, tiptree.org. Actually, um, I, I, you also, uh, the Tip Tree Foundation or whatever that the, pe- the group that puts out the award, they, they also put out a, a, an anthology. Uh, there's been, there's only been a couple. It's, they've only been doing it the last couple of years, but, you know, I reviewed one of them once actually. Uh, so if you want to read that review, I, actually, you can go to Intergalactic Medicine Show and, and check out the review for that. But, um, I was like really, really impressed. Like, I mean, I, I, I like enjoyed the anthology, you know, pretty much cover to cover. Um, but I mean, like just all the different explorations of, of, of gender and science fiction, it was very interesting. Um, you know, you would think that that could get, um, 
you know, over the course of an anthology, you could see how that might, you, you might think that it would come off preachy or something. And so that the whole thing would come sort of be add up to too much all at once. But um, I, I, I actually thought that it, um, it was very, very well done and uh, very balanced, like, you know, just in terms of the types of stories presented. And if people don't know, too, the, the reason that the award is called the Tiptree Award is because there was this famous uh, science fiction writer uh, who published under James Tiptree Jr. And, uh, and nobody knew you know, who, who James Tiptree Jr. was. And uh, it turned out that the Tiptree was a, a woman named Alice Sheldon, uh, who was a CIA agent. And so it was just sort of like second nature for her to create false identities and keep her, you know, her identity hidden and stuff like that. And um, but so it was just kind of interesting because, you know, there were all these stories written by a woman that people thought were written by a man and just kind of, you know, the sort of the interesting discussions that, that come out of that. Um, but there was this, I have, I have not had a chance to read it, but there was this biography by Julie Phillips that came out a few years ago. Um, and it's called James Tiptree Jr. The Double Life of Alice B. Sheldon. And everyone I've heard from has just said, this is like the most amazing biography they've ever read. And she just had this amazing, amazing life. So yeah, I actually highly recommend that. I did I did read that book, and uh, I mean, I'm, I haven't read a lot of biographies, but I mean, I certainly enjoyed it a lot. Um, and uh, I actually also reviewed that Intergalactic Medicine so, show, so you can go read my review of that over there too. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure she was actually a CIA agent. I mean, she worked for the CIA, but she wasn't like you know like a field agent. Oh, she, you think she was like an she was like an analyst or something? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure she was like some kind of analyst. Uh, I mean, I haven't read the book in a while, but I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that she wasn't like an actual agent. But yeah. But I thought that was uh, there was some really interesting anecdotes in that book, though. Like, I mean, um, there were various writers who like I think Robert Silverberg was one actually who um, had been asked something about Tiptree and was and he was talking about how masculine the, the writing was and everything. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Well, they I guess there was some speculation that, that Tiptree might be a woman and, and they asked mm -hmm. Silverberg about that. And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't think so. I think there's just something about Tiptree's writing that's just ineluctably masculine. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know. I, I actually I just read his his memoir too, so mm, I, I sort yeah, of right. got got his take on that. But uh, and he was kind of saying, I mean, he was saying, you know, that he was as pleased as anyone to find out that you know that Tiptree was a woman because it was uh, it was just sort of surprising and interesting, and uh, you know that there was I mean there was certainly you know that she was a very unusual person and she knew a lot about guns and cars and mm -hmm. and things that uh, you know made it difficult to determine who the author might be. Yeah, and actually, I would I would uh, suggest that if you don't know much about the life of Tiptree, um, but you're interested in in what we've said so far, just go ahead and read the book and don't read the jacket copy or anything about it because, um, well, there's kind of a there's kind of an ending that might get spoiled for you if you read too much about it. So um, I would suggest going into it cold if you can and and then just seeing where it leads you. All right, well, that was our episode, and uh, be sure to tune in uh, next time when we're interviewing science fiction author Orson Scott Card. So thanks for listening. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of io9. For this episode's show notes, to subscribe to this podcast, or for more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.